After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I am your co-host today, Becky Shrimpton. Cameron Maitland is not with me today, but instead I have the fantastic Michael Peterson. He's a filmmaker known for Knuckleball and Lloyd the Conqueror, and he recently produced the new film Harpoon. It's awesome. We're going to be talking about that in a second. This is Mike. How you doing, bud? I am doing great, Becky. Thank you. And let me introduce the director of Harpoon, Rob Grant, writer-director of Harpoon. That, from sounds, Vancouver. that sounds like you almost forgot my name there, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I try sometimes. It's in his nightmares. It's, I'm sure it's imprinted at this point as he has to talk to everybody because you guys are now on the home stretch. You've got distribution for it. It's out on the market. Uh, you can buy a really fascinating Blu-ray. We're going to talk about that at the end. It's available on VOD. At what stage do you guys get to like take a break from each other? Good question. We usually are guilty of texting each other late into the night, much to the chagrin of our significant and others so i don't know if it ever quite stops but at least we've i put my i mean i don't know i can't speak for mike but i've put my foot down on no more uh traveling for film festivals for the year so it's starting to wind down i have one more one more film festival in germany to a place i've never been so i was like why not they got beer they got pretzels why not you know as long as you can get your carbs in liquid and solid form they, you may as well go yeah it's a good problem it's a good problem to have though we've been going pretty much twice a month somewhere for since january so uh it's not something we should be complaining around about but it's exhausting and i'm ready to sit at home and do nothing for a little while well, let me ask you guys about what the value is of going to these places in person because you're both albertan and so uh, i mean if you're in toronto it's a little more of a uh, a mobile hub. Um, yeah. So what, what what do you guys get out of going in person to these things instead of just like sending a Skype message or something? There is, especially in the genre world, a community of filmmakers uh, from all over the world that have similar ideas and taste and temperaments, temperaments. And you get to meet all these other people that are part of your community that you wouldn't necessarily meet otherwise, because this is where we tend to collect is um, at the festivals. Uh, and you get to actually talk about films and filmmaking and meet other people whose work you respect, admire, or are interested in. So you get to make all these cool relationships and hopefully find future collaborators or just friends that you'll see uh, the next time you have a film and you're out and about, you know, networking, but also being part of the community that you are a part of and connecting with those people in person and possibly even building uh, your next projects with new collaborators that you wouldn't have met otherwise. You know, I did the festival circuits all wrong for my first two movies where I'd go, I'd still go, but then I'd just do my introduction, do the screening, and then I'd go sightsee with my friends through the city or something uh, instead of going to all the other films and other events. It took me a while to realize it's not actually about um, finding collaborators per se, but it's more about a support group uh, and network that wouldn't exist otherwise. There's the Duplass brothers, the Joe Swanbergs, um, all those guys. They all came up together from meeting each other on the film circuit. And even if they weren't working on each other's projects, what you gain is another person to help champion you. Uh, and I learned that very late that it's, you know, regardless of trying to, sh that you don't want to schmooze. You don't, don't want to make it look like you're trying to get something out of someone else. But what I learned is like, if nothing else, you gain another person that's going to at least help you talk about your film to other people. And then also just, yeah, you get to share your war stories in this crazy indie circuit 
uh, with with the rest of the program or filmmakers, and you find out they're all going through the same struggles, and it just uh, there's strength in numbers. And you guys are collaborating as well on a regular basis, and you're even sharing actors. So Monroe Chambers was both in Harpoon and in uh, Michael's Knuckleball. And I have to ask you guys right away, why are you hell-bent on turning him into some sort of human candy apple? (laughs) We just like to do uh, both right roles where he has to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's such a nice guy. It's fun. And I learned maybe a little later than Mike did because I edited Knuckleball. And so... For me, my my vision of what Monroe could do was strictly based around cutting his performance in Knuckleball for nearly a year. And then it was Mike that pushed him for Harpoon. And I think that was when I grasped what Mike was saying the whole time is that this guy's got this crazy range that's kind of a little bit untapped. I think now he's getting to show the world his chops and stuff. So it's a yeah, it's a it's another thing. These things, I couldn't fill that role with anyone that I was happy with. And it was Mike that really pushed Monroe in my direction and was for the betterment of the film, obviously. Now, what's the value for both of you guys of casting these television predominantly actors in your show? What kind of a, a support do they bring to what you do? Well, on the producing side, not very much, to be honest, like in terms of market, they don't really change the equation much. Basically, what you just want to put in the best cast you can. And if they have some kind of recognizability from something that just never hurts, but ultimately it's got to be the best cast. Rob, the casting on Harpoon, Mm -hmm. that was done a little bit differently than I think you had done in the past. Mm -hmm. Maybe just talk about the stakes going into it and how you chose the cast. Coming from the indie world where we've cast either our friends and family or friends who are also trying to come up as actors on Monami is a good example. It's like we had a good movie, but there's a certain element of it that feels illegitimate because it doesn't have quote unquote movie stars or television actors in it. And then so we're starting to learn that maybe they don't bring in a lot financial unless you're an A-lister that can help pre-sales. But what it does do is it seems to like, oh, who's in this? Okay, a guy that's been in series work on on Degrassi, a guy that's been in series work on Netflix's The Mist, uh, and, a, and a wonderful lady that's been on series work on CBS for three years. It's What it does is, even for maybe casual viewers, is I think it just makes it not seem like it's a homemade project. It seems like there's a little bit of legitimacy to it, even if it's so subtextual or subconsciously. And I think we're just starting to step out into that world of feeling a little more legitimate than maybe our home grassroots movies, uh, at least for me anyway. I Maybe Mike's, Mike was a little bit ahead of the game because his first one had a bunch of uh, television stars in it already, but that's at least was my logic in starting the process of moving out. And then for Harpoon, we did a weird thing where we didn't get a casting agent on board. We, we just went straight to an agency that we had worked with prior and said, hey, we got this weird movie. How about we just give you the script and if you guys like it, why don't you just submit us anyone from your roster you think might be a good fit? And that was kind of just the start of the process. And it was a weird backdoor into the, having support from a major agency and then having their support in like stamping the movie for the cast. So it was just it was a bit of a weird process. I don't know why it doesn't get utilized more, honestly. The, the, there were some reluctance. I think even though we had worked with them a couple of times in the past, if we were making a low budget film, it wasn't going to be a gong show um because that's often the concern you know you send someone out on a low budget film they don't know who the director is or these people are going to be treated properly uh is yeah. it a professional set you know there's lots of points of uh where things can fall apart or trust can not be there but because we had worked together in this scenario in the past i think we had gained a lot of trust with them that you know at the very least we're professionals and we are going to make a good movie and rob's a good director and that's the big one 
working well you know we at least convince them of that yeah you talk a good game rob that's good and it's not like you didn't have previous work behind you to back it up and both of you are graduates of the cfc uh when you're getting into some hollywood stuff or or you're putting your name say towards um this agency how much of your previous work speaks for you and does the cfc carry any weight (laughs) rob the cfc seems to carry weight in toronto is a good way of putting it. It's like geocached. I think around there, it, it it means a little bit more than it does for me here in Vancouver. I mean, it's a good thing to have on the resume because people in Canada know what it is. But the second you get outside of this country, no one has a, a clue. So, you know, if I went to 360 Management, who was the ones that helped us cast this, I was like, I'm a graduate from the CFC. They'd be like, what? And then I'd be like, it's the Canadian version of the Sundance Labs. And they'd be like, okay. And so that stuff kind of doesn't matter. And I don't think even my previous experience really matters because it's still considered grassroots indie stuff the only stuff that really carries any weight is just a recommendation from a prior work environment with them uh you know it seems like we have a good philosophy where it's like you know the walls aren't put up to keep us out they're put up to keep out those that don't want it bad enough but what we learned is when we climbed over that first wall there's 20 other walls waiting for us and it seems like every time we make make a new movie someone's erected a new wall that we have to either climb over or dig under to prove to somebody that we're not a bunch of boneheads. So, I mean, that's, I don't know if I got a little bit off track there, but there's my rant on that whole thing. And then, Rob, have you proved conclusively that you're not a bonehead? Definitely not. I mean, that's the thing, you know, it's going to be, you hope that there's growth on each movie. So, I mean, on the next, if there's a next one, we're I think we're going to try and take it another tier up and it's going to be all the same hoops and proving grounds again, is what I imagine. Now, I watch a lot of movies, so I can also guarantee they allow boneheads to make movies. Often, one might even say. <laughs> and that having been said, I absolutely love the movie you guys made. I love Harpoon so much. I have been yelling at people to go see it and making them rent it. I announced it loudly at a party last week. And, uh, you know, my word is God among my friends, obviously, because I have a podcast. Cool. Um, But I do have to ask you about uh, the challenges of shooting this thing because you basically made a one-room drama on a boat and it wasn't about the death of Natalie Wood. So talk to me about this. We also Uh, made that in Alberta. (laughs) Yeah, farthest place away from an ocean. Well, I guess not the farthest. I guess Manitoba will probably be further. I don't know. I think they have lakes there at least. Yeah, that's true. You got a small one. It looked more like a reservoir. (laughs) That's right. <laughs> I think at one point we were actually debating and then like a pinch, could we shoot a pickup at the reservoir or something? I think the original pitch that I gave Mike is, you know, I was super frustrated with where I was feeling as uh, my career was at. Uh, I'd just come off a project that I wasn't too happy about and I was worried that I wasn't going to have an opportunity to do another movie. And so I told Mike, you know, I'm like, if this is my last kick at the can, I've got this I- weird idea that I don't know if it's going to work and I want to try all the stuff that I was too scared to try before. And I- I just gave him, I can't remember what the initial pitch was, but his response was right that right now. I came back very quickly with a first draft and then we kind of went back and forth on a couple drafts of how to elevate it and make it better. And even Michael Ironside pitched in some valuable story ideas and we were off. I think I pitched you in like October and by January we were shooting. So it just, it was a, it was a really weird fast turnaround, but Mike can maybe speak more to his outside perspective on that whole thing. He had uh, this movie and he's like, I want to make it for a tiny bit of money and I want to use my, my buddy's boat. I can access it. It's in Vancouver. Uh, I've got, I've almost got the script ready. Then he sent me the script and I was like, this is really good, but you know, it's probably a draft or two away. I don't know, a couple drafts away. Uh, we went back and forth on some, some ideas. And then I was like, why, why, why? I don't think you should make this in Vancouver. I think we should 
you know, make this as a proper movie because I think it's a good script and I don't think you need to make it that way because he had uh, an experience. He was trying to, you know, have a new experience that would help change that past experience. He wanted to do it a certain way that I, the way I read it was he wanted something that was uncomplicated and he was able to swing for the fences and not be worried about sort of the investment or other things that would make it a stressful experience. So it could be an enjoyable, well, as enjoyable as it gets for Rob. You can ask him how much he enjoys it in the process. He's a somewhat neurotic filmmaker, I suppose we all are. But he wanted to be able to do certain things creatively. And I was like, well, let's do it this way. I think at this budget range, it still makes sense. Um, there was a couple of companies that were like, we don't get it. We don't think it's funny. We don't think it's this. And I was like, those people are wrong. So let's just make the movie we think that we should make. You go with your gut. Follow your instincts. They're good. And then I tried to support that decision. And we talked about a few cast things. And there was one cast person that I was just like, are you sure this is a person? And he's like, yeah. I was like, okay, well then let's do it. For me, it's just like, it was the movie where, and I just hearing you say that where you're like, uh, where, cause it's true that we first bunch of groups that were companies that we sent this to all said, this doesn't make any sense. This movie's stupid. I think one person literally said, this is a stupid movie on a boat where nothing happens. Fine. Fair enough. Mike really had to stick his neck out on this movie because if we didn't do this correctly, I think we all would have looked really stupid and proved all those idiots correct. So, yeah, it was a it was just a weird one where we kind of felt like it was this movie has a bit of a feeling of a middle finger to me. That was literally part of the narration at some point. Well, this is a movie that is deeply unpleasant and it's very dark, but it has that almost jet black comedy, War of the Roses, you don't like anyone and you don't really want anyone to win sort of feel that I haven't felt or I haven't seen pulled off in a long time. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. And then the narration on top of it and the beautiful delivery by Brett Gelman really just kind of ties everything up in this nice little bow. And that brings me to wanting to talk about the idea of making unlikable characters watchable. Because it's something I see so often in genre films where they just have these terrible, terrible people and then you're supposed to take joy in watching them get killed off, but you don't because they're just so unpleasant to spend time with that you're just like, okay, I just can't even engross myself in this world. But in this film, I don't even want to get into too much of what happens, but there's so many twists and turns about who these people are, what they've done to each other, and as more and more layers are sort of peeled away, you're just like, oh, I hate you so much. You're awful, but I just like you because you're Monroe Chambers. So how do you find that balance so that it reads both on camera after the casting and you cast people with actual chemistry as human beings versus on the page? I think Mike and me both have a similar philosophy where we know we approach companies with these weird projects and then they usually come back being like, this is dumb. This is not what the market wants. And then that's usually our sign that that's why our instincts are correct because if we chased what the market wants, we're already two years behind what's popular and what's happening and what it's just a bad philosophy for us for making what we consider like art. It just doesn't make sense to us. We want to make what we think is interesting uh, and try stuff because that's how you get break through the breakthrough doors. What was interesting to me was a survival story where no one gets along. That is the interesting part of the movie to me. We've seen the opposite where they have to work together to survive. And I'm just like, that was of no interest to me. People either love or hate movies about bad people doing bad things. It's a subgenre in itself. You know, Oliver Stone did U-Turn, which I don't actually particularly like. I like the editing, uh, but that's about it. Uh, Natural Born Killers. Like, everyone's like, are you really cynical? And I actually say, no, I'm super empathetic. I just want to know why these people turn out this way. And I think maybe it was just, and I can't speak to this because I don't have a clue what the audience latches on to. 
I just personally wanted to know how people get to this. It's like therapy to me, you know, it's like I could be any one of these three people had my life gone a different direction. Uh, and I just want to know how people get to this level of be- bad behavior. But I think maybe it's because I come at it from a level of curiosity. It's, it's a tough question for me to answer because I just was drawn to these characters. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What do you think makes a character likable or, or not likable? Me? Yeah, well, both of you. I mean, I'm always curious by these things. Well, in a movie, you know, they do the cliched stuff. It's like this show this character saving a dog, saving the damsel in distress. But I've seen enough of that that I get bored. And I just want to see people have conversations or have to deal with real life situations. Not real life. I like seeing people have to crawl through the mud. Proverbially is, I guess, the good way to look at it. I think for me, I want to see people's moral compass. And I want them to, whatever that moral compass happens to be, I want to understand what their north is and then why they're making choices based around that thing. Oh, and yes. if I don't yeah. see that, then everything else they're going to do just doesn't make any sense to me. If everything's just arbitrary, then I just can't go along with what they're doing. And if what they're doing yeah. is reprehensible, I mean, there's so many villains we cheer for. And every single one of these characters has a moral magnetic north that just slightly keeps getting pulled at by another magnet. It's great because each of these people are their own their own magnetic pulls, if you want to go along with the metaphor with me. Yeah, no, no, no. That makes sense because I feel like their magnetic north, without giving away much of the story, is that they're just trying to keep this broken French. Like they all need each other. I yeah. think that's their magnetic north. And so every bad decision they make is in an effort to get there. I mean, I'm obsessed with Seinfeld. If that show wasn't a comedy, these are the most horrible people on planet Earth. But their compass is that they all require each other. And I hope maybe, maybe that's it. I know less extreme versions of all of these people throughout my life. And so I, that's just the way that I've approached this movie. (laughs) Well, that's perfect, because I think that brings us exactly into the next movie that you wanted to talk about, because we're spending a lot of time in one small contained space with some people who could be deeply unlikable and are doing deeply unlikable things, but have very specific moral compasses. What movie did you want to talk about? Hardcore Logo. We talked about this movie really early on when we first started the podcast, but uh, we haven't talked about it in a long time, and I fucking love this movie, and I want more people to see it because it's so good. What about this movie? spoke to you, Rob. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that I am usually the Canadian filmmaker. Like, I usually try to not be labeled as the Canadian filmmaker. I'd love to just be a filmmaker. So I'm usually quite, you know, there's the old cliche that Canada's 30% worse. And I'll then that can be attributed to our filmmaking industry as well. But for some reason, that movie hit like a level. I remember watching it and being like, this doesn't feel any different from all of these Hollywood movies that I've watched. It just is done in a different way. I remember that just being my initial feeling, and that's kind of what opened me up to Bruce McDonald. It's also one of the early adoptions of not found footage, but it kind of almost feels like a different version of Spinal Tap is a good way of looking at it. It's Spinal Tap with a literal acid trip. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you mean by the felt American or something you said? Just didn't feel like a Canadian movie that was 30% worse than the rest of than the American stuff. I remember watching it at Young Person, people like, oh, this doesn't, this feels like it was made in in States is what it felt like to me. And I know that may not make a lot of sense to a lot of people, but it's like, that's my, that was my opinion on how it just didn't feel like a Canadian movie to me. It felt like it had universal themes that I don't think are strictly tied to, you know, because we have the cliche where movies are about snow and Stuff that only like moose and mounties and stuff. It just did. This didn't feel like that. It felt like it had universal themes that didn't touch upon all strictly Canadian inside jokes. 
I love that you said that. Thank you so much, Robin. Here's why. Because I have seen over 200 Canadian films at this point for this podcast. And everyone says the same thing. They're like, I don't really want to watch Joshua Jackson roll up a rim and then decide he's going to travel across Canada because he has cancer. Um, And that is the quintessential idea of a Canadian film. And out of the 200 we've watched, there's been maybe four that are like that. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if what you love about this movie is the actual, like, and what feels American about it is the pace. So it's, Mm -hmm. there's uh, an idea we have with Canadian movies that they go really slow and the NFB especially with that meandering documentary sort of sound they have we very much attribute that to a Canadian feel it's homey it's folksy you know it's mm-hmm. uh, it's corner gas and this is punk rock put in a bottle shoved onto celluloid in a broken glass knife fight and then just mm-hmm. uh, you know they set the, the projector on fire and you have to keep up as the celluloid burns that sounds correct to me yeah no I'm with you and then I'll even throw telefilm under the bus a little bit on that because as much as they say they don't want coming-of-age stories, they certainly fund a lot of coming-of-age stories. But isn't this a coming-of-age story? Which one? Hardcore Logo? Hardcore Logo. It's a coming-of-age story. It's Joe Dick realizing he needs to grow the fuck up and everybody else is leaving him and he can't cope with it. Well, without spoilers, I don't think he actually comes of age, but... (laughs) But but that's the way he he deals with it. I mean, you think of something like um, Dead Poet Society. Dead Dead Poet Society is a coming-of-age story where he doesn't grow up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're all. They could all. You could argue any movie is a bit of a coming of age story, but this is perhaps one that's. Yeah, it's disguised as something else. Perhaps is a good way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guys first see this film? I remember it on video. Was the first time I saw it. it. Was at the video store, and it had like, like something on the cover looked cool to me. There was something about the cover art that also felt different and cool and edgy. And I think it was like, what, what I don't remember the exact date it came out, but there was something about the cover that felt edgy and drew me in and that's what it was it was the cover i think i'm gonna go with the actual cover as well or it's just like the the anarchist logo because i think i remember picking it up thinking i was picking up it might have been like tank girl or something like that there's something else that came out around the same time that had the same like punk rock feel i can't remember what the heck it was now but for some reason tank girl is the first thing that came to my head and i remember picking this up and we like wait a minute this isn't that but it still looks very interesting i think it was on vhs and i just remember watching it finishing it and being like that was different <laughs> <laughs> have you watched it more than once in like a short period of time not in a short period of time but i've definitely watched it more than once but i can tell you right now i have not seen it in a long time but there's like specific memories i have of it one is uh when they're talking about on the road trip i think and then he shows like their recreation of a road on a treadmill like a fake road that's rolling pin there's a weird sequence where they do a rolling pin road and it's like the road stripes are on a rolling pin or something like that. I remember thinking, I'm like, this guy's actually trying to do these weird creative ticks that I'm not seeing other people try. And, and I remember that sticking out being like, oh, there's a level of creativity here that I need to figure out before I try doing this myself. Like, it's almost like his, the, his modern answer to the, and I'm probably blanking on the film, but that movie where those two guys from Newfoundland go to Toronto. Going down the road. Going down the road. Yes. It almost feels like it could be a response to like it's a, it feels like it's a conversation of, between two Canadian films in a way and someone being like, I'm not going to follow those rules and Canadian film can be something else. Which it is. Do you guys want to go down a quick little Canadian film history thing? Yep. Yeah. OK, so this is actually his third Canadian road film movie, the first one being Roadkill, which also had Joey Ramone in it. The second one being uh, Highway 61 and then this one. And this one came just after Dance Me Outside. And everyone was like, do you really want to do another Canadian road movie? And he was like, 
I don't think this is a road movie. I think it's just a movie where people just happen to be on the road. I think this is a relationship movie. And he's right. And then he would explore that later on, I think, what, three years ago with Weirdos was another return to the going down the road sort of vibe. But he did create Roadkill specifically as a fuck you to going down the road of like, this is our version of that. Because he was part of the, as it's called, the Canadian New Wave, which included um, Dama Keller and Patricia Rosema and Adam Agoyan, et cetera. So that was, these are responses to that. You're exactly right, Mike. Cool. Well, that's how I see it. That's what it feels like. I'm really hoping that we can be part of the new, new, new wave. <laughs> I don't think, I don't, I don't think we can label ourselves as that, Mike. Just killed it. Damn it. The nouveau, nouveau vague. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I keep, keep trying to come up with film terminology and language that I apply to these things and it never sticks. It's like coming up with your own nickname. You just can't do it. I think something I really love about this movie is just how incredibly layered it is and the the fact that what the like what the core issue is between Billy and Joe Dick that they had sex with each other and don't want to talk about it is only really once said explicitly but never said explicitly between the two of them but throughout the entire film they're laying these hints be it through the soundtrack or be it through background conversations or be it through the performances of background artists um, of exactly what happened between the two of them including twice they play that uh, I love you Billy I really love you Billy's song from like the 70s and it's the don't break my heart and it's playing all the time when the two of them are doing like intimate scenes together and i'm like god damn it bruce <laughs> like what are you this is ridiculous this is the first time that i'm picking up on any of that subtext or even if it's explicitly that's crazy yeah that how good like and not trying to push that in in your face that is then if that's the case it makes more sense now that you're saying that but yeah, that's uh, that's crazy to me that they would do that and keep it in like the background. Because I watched it again and I was like, oh man, Joe Dick's death is still, spoiler alert, is still genuinely disturbing. Like that moment oh, yeah. still comes out of nowhere and it's like, holy shit. But it doesn't because he talks about the moment when they're at the at the big record company when he fucks it for all of them. They're, they're uh, When he pisses on the record executive and he, set, he does it halfway through the song, something or something's going to die. And he is big on the ground gesture and grand gesture and all about the big finish is what I think I think it's pipe fitter who tells that story and says those things and I'm like oh yeah of course he's gonna kill himself like <laughs> like it's ridiculous when you go back you're like oh no it's obvious what's going to happen but he's he's layered it so beautifully that it's still a surprise and then you go back and you're like oh no this was inevitable uh, it's a little bit of Sid and Nancy too isn't it yes kind of, that's not Canadian that's a bit of a sidetrack but <laughs> but no I was actually gonna ask you guys this do you guys think this is a more quintessential punk rock movie than Sid and Nancy because Sid and Nancy I feel like romanticizes punk rock in a way that isn't punk rock and this is just so sad and miserable and pathetic that it is punk rock yeah i remember, oh, I remember when Sid nancy first came out and being kind of excited by it i was into you know some of that punk music scene i was like why the hell is because it? it was like it felt like a studio film so i mean automatically it feels like it loses some credibility it's Alex cox though isn't it i think so yeah who has a lot of credibility but i mean repo man is more punk rock than Sid and nancy i think it just has really good actors in it playing those roles, and they probably were all fans. Yeah. There's I mean, little about the film that feels punk rock to me. Well, here's my problem, and Mike knows this all very well from me, is I can't stand the like romanticizing the artist struggle. I'm very vocal when we're out on the film circuit. Everyone's like, what do you want to do next? I'm like, nothing if we can't afford to do it. I have to be able to pay my rent. And I feel like maybe Sid and Nancy romanticizes that, whereas at least Hardcore Logo shows that this is, can be detrimental to your health and maybe that's why i'm like that's more realistic to me because i 
you can you can crawl through the trenches as long as you want, but sooner or later something's got to give. And of course, they end in Edmonton, which is so appropriate. Because I remember when I was growing up uh, up in Edmonton, there was a massive go- goth punk rock scene. And then I moved to Vancouver, and I was like, "Where are my goth scene scenesters at?" And there was nothing. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that they start in Vancouver. Because I mean, they started the Cobalt and like those kind of standard things, which by the time I got there when I was 18 in like 2000, 2000, 2001, all that stuff was basically gone or it was just, you know, a total shithole that didn't really have music. But Edmonton was still this place. So when they do their journey, it's very much the prairie provinces that are supporting that kind of music and that kind of style because it's the music of struggle. It's also the music that there was a killer scene for that music with DOA and SNFU, kind of that thrash metal punk scene. Smalls were part of that. Like it was a really good scene in the early 80s to I don't know when it disappeared sometime in the 90s. But it was like a legit scene. Uh, So I mean, it made sense in that like as a factual thing. Yeah, it's like a time capsule. And then he went ahead and made Hardcore Logo too, but we're not going to talk about that. I think I remember being excited about that because I, I, I did do a little Googling to try and give myself a refresher. And I'm like, oh yeah, Hardcore Logo too. That really didn't stick in my memory too well. There's a reason for that. It's uh, the lead singer of Dimanikin gets possessed by the spirit of Joe Dick. Oh, yeah. Like it was a weird and like career wise, it's very strange for Bruce McDonald because now he does a lot of genre film, right? Like it's rare that he now does like a family sort of drama. And if he does, it's something fucked up and twisted like The Husband. Um, but oh, that was great. It's so good. But then he has that th- this like bridge in between his genre films and his more standard fare. Well, I think Pontypool was like a bit of a game changer for him too, where it's just like, oh, this, this is like, you can still be crazy entertaining while trying to tell a little bit more behind the scenes. Fuck that movie's good, but then he got went got more. Let's let's just go into the work of, of Bruce McDonald. Uh, but then he goes straight traditional horror movie with something like Hellions. Yeah, which I, I have not seen, seen that one yet. Yeah. No good. Yeah. Sorry guys, no good. Don't worry I about it. About it. I was excited when I heard about it. Oh yeah, it looks weird. It, I remember looking at the trailer and being like, "That doesn't seem correct." It just feels like anyone's generic horror movie that ends up on DVD, which is what it is. But his new one that it just hit Fantasia called Dreamland. The cast is bananas. It's Juliette Lewis, Stephen McCaddy, and Henry Rollins are the leads, and it's this like utterly surreal gangland horror at a wedding, uh, set in the 1930s, and just it's very Pontypool-esque in the ways over saturated all of his reds and stuff it looks really cool at least visually so i'm pretty excited about when that gets out on the on the higher market and uh it's tony burgess who wrote it um who also wrote Pool. so we'll see oh, how nice. it is but that's always so crazy i mean this is one of the problems and we have this problem too he's at the stage he's at in his career how can the movie that he makes if it's not a good movie kind of be out there and all the theaters etc and get a proper release and all that. I don't know if that was with the films and I got held up because of some of those things. But, but I mean, why is that not? Why is that film not out there in all the theaters for people to watch? Dreamland? Oh, because it just got released. It's just doing the festival circuit right now. It will. Yeah, I hope so. Because it it's will. always a travesty when it when that doesn't happen. Oh, I agree. I think it's especially because genre film. It's someone said recently. I'm trying to remember what the quote was. That once upon a time in Hollywood will be the last adult drama that is not like a Marvel movie or a Disney movie or like a, a big epic that will be released in theaters. Everything else from here on in is just going to be these big blockbuster uh, things and then like the occasional VIP release of stuff for Oscar season, which people go see. Mm-hmm. And as long as he keeps making these genre films, there's going to be a release for it. And on that note, why don't we talk about how people can see Harpoon? And I recommend it so much. How do people find it, guys? Mike, I'm leaving that to you. Check out things like iTunes and wherever you get your 
video on demand. You can check us out on, we have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter at Harpoon Movie. And how about your other work? Mike, how do people find you and your work? Oh, sure. Well, you can, Knuckleball is out on Crave now. So you can watch it there if you have a subscription. Uh, and it's uh, all the same type of places like iTunes and VOD channels. Um, and Lloyd the Conqueror is out there somewhere too. I actually don't know exactly where that at, but you'll be able to find it if you look. <laughs> and how about you, Rob? How do people find you and your previous work? Uh, you can't find me because I am sneaky with my <laughs> social media, um, but they can find uh, most of my stuff on the usual yeah, iTunes and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, we should be better at hawking our wares, Mike. I know. <laughs> I've given Mike a whole month to do this, so don't worry. Listeners are going to hear more about Harpoon. It's going to be great. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah, you can figure this one out for me, Mike. But just by the end, I will. I figured it out. And then as per usual, you can find me on the Twitters at Liz Shrimpton. That's the masculine Liz Shrimpton over there. You can find the podcast at RCM Pod. You can donate to our Patreon if you think we're worth some money. And let me tell you guys, we are worth some money. That is patreon.com slash RCM Pod. And I think that's just about everything. So guys, let's go get a moose head. Thanks, Becky. I'm, Always a pleasure. Okay, yep. I'm drinking a Bud Light, unfortunately. There's my, the American side of me is coming out now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.